One of the great privileges of a priest, especially of a pastor of a parish, 
is to do a lot of weddings. So I spend most of my Saturdays standing somewhere about yay and being the first, usually even before the groom, to catch a glimpse of the bride. Now, all brides are beautiful in their own way. Otherwise, there wouldn't be grooms for them. (laughs) But every once in a while, there's one who simply takes your breath away. She's stunning. She's gorgeous. And it's not even, and I think you'll get this, it's not even that she's hot. I mean, presumably the groom thinks so, or we've got a different problem. But it's a different kind of beauty, right? It's the kind of beauty that commands every eye in the house. You can't help but look. And it's not creepy staring either. It's, it, it's the kind of staring that's, that's involuntary, that's drawn from the inside out. The church at her best is precisely this kind of beauty. It's not about the cut of the vestments or the exact shape of the sanctuary, though those things matter. But it is rather about the ability to catch our eye, and more than our eye, to capture our minds and our hearts, to grab our attention and draw it in. It's the beauty of a stunning bride on her wedding day. We could say, very simply, and if we were attempting to communicate only information, well, you know, when Quirinius was governor of Syria, but it would not do what he did a moment ago. When Quirinius was governor of Syria, you can't not listen, right? You can't ignore that. I could walk out, in the sweats and and band shirt I'm wearing underneath this. It's what I wear under my clothes every single day. I got an old lady that hems sweatpants for me, and you would just think I was another bum off the street. Of course I am. That's the point. But when you dress up the bum, it's very, very clear that what he's doing matters more, far more than him. We cover our priests and our kings in gold, not because they're important, but because the one they serve is all important. Jesus alone shows up naked and commands our attention as an infant. That word infants, infants in Latin, though the Greek and Hebrew loanwords have the same origin, it literally, it doesn't mean like tiny one. We might be tempted to think it means little. It doesn't. It means the speechless one. The one who can't yet talk. I hear this, friends. The word, the eternal word of the Father spoken from before time began, the word who set the stars in their courses and bounded the depths of the sea, the word who 
breathed into the nostrils of the first man made of mud and gave him life, that word tonight falls silent. For you and for me, that word falls silent in the face of the world which it is made, that the creature might, that the creator might become the creature. You see what's happening here? He's flipped everything. You know, we think the script is flipped when the, the sort of hapless goad turns out to be the hero. This doesn't even compare. This, this is like my dog turning out to be the master, but more. Because the distance between me and my dog is much closer by nature than between me and my God. We want to skip to the end. We see the baby, and he's cuddly, and we see the pictures of him when he gets older, and he looks like a friendly uncle or a youth minister or something. Oh, he'd be great. He'd be fun to have a beer with. He'd be great to hang out with. Except when he starts, like, talking about setting things on fire. I don't like that part. Listen. Listen to the silence of this night. That's why it's called Silent Night. It's not because everything in Bethlehem stopped. It's because the universe stopped and looked, if just for a moment, because inside the baby was something more. Now our hearts are moved at the sight of children, of infants. Some of this is by nature. The, the psalmist, right, says, you know, though a mother forget her child. But this is way past that, and frankly, our affection for children is largely the result of Christian civilization. Most people for most of history have not been wild about them. They tend to eat and poop a lot and not do much else. And when most of them don't live to adulthood, they're kind of a bad investment, right? But Christian civilization said no because she had seen first in the face of a baby her Redeemer. The church recognized from the moment she got who he really was that from the beginning, he was who he was. Jesus didn't come into Godhood the way we go through puberty. He didn't wake up when he was 30 and decide he had a mission from his father that he hadn't been able to discern before. Everything he needed to know for his mission was known perfectly in both his human and divine nature from the very beginning. It was us who took time to figure out who he was and what he was about, and the reason that matters is because the moment we realized who he really was, everything changed. She used to be just the nice lady who made hummus. And now she's the mother of a god. You know, old churches, really old churches, like in Rome and in Greece, like pre-5th century, the apse, this part, it's, it's always rounded, and the image is always of Mary. It's very startling for Western Christians and especially Protestants the first time they go. What? This is disproportionate. Mary's surely not the most important thing. No, she's not, Dumbo. She's a mother. And mothers carry things inside them. So she's in the dome above us because who's here? Him! Him! 
The whole physical structure of the church is built to direct you to one place because this is where he comes. Don't you see, tonight, Des Moines has become another Bethlehem. This church, another stable. This altar, a manger. A manger from which we, poor wild beasts, we often are, are able to feed, to feast on the flesh and blood of God. The commanding, compelling presence of that beautiful bride is what the church is at her best at prayer. She adorns herself with costly garments. She, she sets up a space totally different from any other space we go to. Your house doesn't look like this, even with a tree. And that's on purpose. When we build churches to look like houses or banks or something, that just means we've lost the faith. But when we recognize that in this space something happens that happens nowhere else, then it must needs look different. It must be the most beautiful space we come to, the most beautiful space we know. We do this naturally in our homes, right? There are items in my father's house that I am still afraid to touch. Like there's a bowl that sits on a top shelf. And as a 40-year-old man, I am still terrified of what mother will say from the grave if I reach up and try and take it. Also, if we're honest, the reason it's on the top shelf is so I can't reach it. (laughs) Now, I want you to think about this. This could prick harder than I mean it to, so if people get antsy, I apologize. But I do. I just want you to think about this because I, I have this thought every time I watch little ones come up for Holy Communion. If there's something in your house that your kid's not allowed to touch, like a precious bowl or a vase or something, why are they touching this? Why are you? I mean, I have to, right, manually to get it to you. And there can be good reasons people receive on the hand. This isn't a knock on communion on the hand itself, but I want us to think about that because... Because the way that we sacralize things, the way that we make things holy, is by creating distance. We salute a flag we don't like. Right? This would be wildly disrespectful. And people love to tease priests like me for making fussy things at church. Tell a soldier he's being too fussy about his flag. Y'all are just lucky I'm a priest and not a soldier. See, God has a way of commanding our attention, of compelling us to action, both interior and exterior. He never does it by force, but when, when the Holy Spirit shows up, it's like we can't help ourselves, like with that beautiful bride who catches our eye coming down the aisle. And this works itself out even in the Mass. It's like the technical language for this is the divine imperative, because the imperative is the grammatical form that commands, right? It's where I say, jump, and you say, how high, right? And then you actually jump. There are moments where the priest commands. And I want you to notice this tonight because it'll look different than usual because of the way the altar's set up. 
after the offertory is done, when the priest invites you now to share in what he's set up, he touches the altar and he turns around and he says, pray, not, would you be so kind as to maybe offer a prayer? Not, if you're feeling it today, could you maybe not let us, if we are so inclined, no, pray, pray. It's a command. Because if you haven't gotten it by that point, you're in an army. You've been conscripted, whether you want to be or not. You're here, and if you're going to stay here, you better do your job. That's the reason we bolt up and stand at that point, too. You're standing at attention. You're exercising a priestly office. You guys are priests, too, just of a different sort. Today, God issues the great divine imperative. He comes in the flesh to save us from our sins. That's that's why the church exists. It's not simply to be the island of misfit toys. I do that pretty well by nature. The church at her best is a field hospital, of course, but it's not simply to create a safe space for people to come that feel freaked out elsewhere. It's not simply a good place for people who are mourning to come and cry. It's not only a place for the hungry to receive their fill or for good news to be preached to people who are otherwise down. Those are all important functions. We do those. But you could do all of that and more, and probably more efficiently, without the church. The church exists for the forgiveness of sins. This is the ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ on earth. The forgiveness of sins. Reconfigured, represented, recapitulated every time the Eucharist is offered on an altar, made vital and integral to the individual every time we approach the sacrament of penance, confession, reconciliation. And when the church gathers, we're all constantly growing in holiness and hopefully putting off vice. And so, having our sins forgiven bit by bit, day by day, growing in grace and virtue. And see, this is the trick, guys. When this works, your presence becomes compelling. You become beautiful. They used to call the Desert Fathers, the first of the monks who lived off by themselves, the beautiful old men. Maybe better in English, the pretty old men. The, the adjective is feminine on purpose. It's a, it's, it's a contrast, right? Nobody looks at old men and says pretty. You might say cute if you're being patronizing, but if you want to make him not feel bad, right? But you'd never call him pretty. If he's handsome, then he's actually handsome, right? I guess it's possible to be hot at 80. But, but, but that's not this. This is a different thing. Look at the, the image of Mother Teresa as you're leaving the church. She captures this in our age. She was not an attractive woman. Right? I mean, by the end, by the time that statue's made, she resembles an Applehead doll. She's been left out in the sun too long. And yet, you can't not look at her. When I ran the old priest's home, I came to understand this. Because I'd see some of these guys who were old and ugly. 
in the way that newborn babies often are ugly, not cute, and yet commanding all our attention. Because what caught the eye of those in the stable of Bethlehem, and what is meant to catch your eye here tonight, is not the way anybody or anything precisely looks or sounds. Those are, importantly, accidental. It's about what lives inside. Now, there might be better and worse ways to make that clear, fair enough. That's why we're doing this this way. But make no mistake, the compelling force, the beautiful bridegroom you encounter this night is nothing less than God in the flesh. Which is why God can, and this is important, it is a hard, it is a hard lesson, but it is perhaps the most important thing we can learn at Christmas. Joy! Joy! It's not an option tonight, even if the holidays are tough. It's not an if you can, even if these are tough times for you personally. It's not an if you can work up the emotions. No! No! Just as I will demand in moments for you to pray, God is saying, rejoice! Rejoice, sinner, because your sins are forgiven. Rejoice, you have fallen, because today you stand up. Rejoice, broken man, for today you are healed. Rejoice, made of mud. Today you are lifted to the heights of heaven. God has come to live with you tonight. Don't you dare refuse to live with him forever.